Hello everyone, welcome to my podcast. Today I'm going to be discussing outside of the binary, gender roles in India, um, taking an account into the history of non-binary structures and the influence of colonialism on Indian gender norms. So first off, I'd like to welcome everyone and introduce myself. My name is Melon Hervé. I'm a fourth year international studies major and management minor at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, During this fall quarter, I was taking a class called Colonialism and Gender, where we had discussions regarding various influences and outcomes of colonialism on different BIPOC groups through the forms of systemic structures, forced and adopted notions, um, the subjection to exploitation, and a loss of autonomy and sovereignty. For our final presentation, I was prompted to create a podcast on a topic related to the course, and I decided that I wanted to take a closer look at gender roles in India. After one day when I was scrolling on Instagram, I came across the handle at Zaddy Zane, with a one in the Zane, um, who is this content creator named Zane Saha, a non-gender conforming South Asian whose content depicts him in elegant dresses and fabric glamorous makeup and accessories such as crowns and traditional Indian jewelry. So this got me thinking, how has the Indian perceptions of gender been influenced and altered by British colonial rule? So first, this podcast is going to take a dive into the history of a non-binary third gender in India that was respected and also an instrumental part of society. We'll then reflect on the influence of colonial rule that brought Western binary notions of gender to India, which led to the ostracizing of non-binary genders and subsequently the structural state-sanctioned violence through legal actions and persecution, state-sanctioned discrimination, and the birth of rigid gender norms. So beginning with some historical accounts of non-binary gender in India, while I was conducting my research, I came across a community of individuals in India called the Hijra. So the Hijra, as Jennifer Rellis, who writes for the University of Michigan's Journal of Gender and Law, states that the term Hijra translates to eunuch or hermaphrodite, but um, actually the community in India prefers not to use the term eunuch, and um, just because there's some derogatory um, connotations around it, but the definition of a hijra is intersexed men who identify as women and other transgendered or transvestite men who act and dress as women. This recognition may be due to the religious underpinnings of the group and the prominent role that the hijras play in Indian culture. So this is a community that has existed for over 4,000 years, with their origin story being recounted in the Ramayana, one of the two major Sanskrit epics of ancient India that forms the Hindu Itahas. As the story goes, Prince Rama, one of the most virtuous Hindu heroes, is to be banished from his kingdom. As he addresses the emotional crowd in front of him of his departure, he calls on the men and women to return to the city. As the crowd disperses, a group of individuals remain who are neither men nor women, the Hijra. To show his appreciation for their loyalty, 
Brahma rewarded the Hijras by giving them the power to bless auspicious occasions such as marriage and childbirth through customary singing and dancing known as Badhi. What we can gather from this ancient Hindu text is that there was a presence of a third gender in India that was not only revered, but came into this position of societal power due to the very fact that they existed outside of the gender binary. So the transgender community was, until the advent of colonialism, a respected section of society. Although the hijras present like women in terms of their dress and mannerisms, it is important to distinguish that they are also not women. Serena Nanda, an anthropologist who has extensively studied the community, classifies their female behavior as burlesque dancing, smoking, and acting in sexually explicit ways, all things falling outside of the traditional female role in Indian society. So the Hijra community not only breaks the binary in gender portrayal, but also in performance, where they actively challenge current gendered notions and roles established in Indian culture. The Hijra identity is deeply rooted in Indian culture, the Hindu belief that all people contain male and female attributes, which they call Atta Narishvara. <laughs> Atanarishvara is a composite form of the Hindu deities Shiva and Parvati that represents the synthesis of masculine and feminine energies in the universe and illustrates how Shakti, the female principle of God, is inseparable from Shiva, the male principle of God, and vice versa. The union of these principles is exalted as the root and womb of all creation. The masculine and the feminine are equally divided within yourself. If the inner masculine and feminine meet, you are in a perpetual state of ecstasy. This is when Hinduism believes you are a full-blown human being. You are not skewed toward the masculine or the feminine, but rather have allowed both of these things to grow. It is important to note that masculine and feminine does not mean male and female. There are certain qualities. It is only when these two qualities happen to balance within that a human can live a life full of fulfillment. The first images of Arthanarishvara are dated to the 1st century CE, but its iconography has evolved and was perfected until the 3rd century CE. Arthanarashvara remains a popular iconographic form found in most Shiva temples throughout India, though very few temples are dedicated to this deity. So some questions arise with all of this. Why do gender roles in Indian society persist if an integral part of Hinduism, which is practiced by nearly 80% of the population, revolves around balance and acceptance of the masculine and feminine within oneself. How does a community, the Hishra, that was once honored with prominent roles in customary events and celebrations, find themselves in positions where today they are pushed to the outskirts of society and considered second-class citizens? Could this be a lasting impact of colonial influence? It would not be the first case of colonized people having lost historical and traditional culture at the hands of Western imperialism. With British colonial rule and imperialism in India came state-sanctioned violence as the British imposed various doctrines in the 19th century. Among them, 
the Criminal Tribes Act of 1871, in which Article 26 states that any eunuch so registered who appears dressed or ornamented like a woman in a public street or place or any other place with the intention of being seen from a public street or place or who dances or plays or takes part in any public exhibition in a public street or place or for hire in a private house may be arrested without warrant and shall be punished with imprisonment of either description for a term which may extend two years or with fine or with both. So this outright forbids gender expression of the Hydra community and forces them to assimilate to colonial binary notions. By keeping this hidden from the public, they are actively suppressing representation, and I would argue that this is an act to attempt to eradicate the Hijra community, at least socially, by persecuting and erasing their identity, by dictating what is legally allowed to be performed in terms of gender. Paving the way for the Criminal Tribes Act, the Indian Penal Code of 1860s enacted by the British recognized only two genders, creating a binary that previously didn't exist and marking the beginning of government-sponsored othering of non-binary persons. The lasting effects on the Hydra and the other non-conforming communities are social, economic, and medical, as identification cards and other official documents only require male or female identification. More recently, a requirement of certification of sexual reassignment surgery is necessary to change your birth assignment sex. This cuts out the intersexed and non-binary community by still enforcing a binary, although fluid. As with transgender people in most of the world, they face extreme discrimination in health, housing, education, employment, immigration, law, and any bureaucracy that is unable to place them in male or female gender categories. This makes the Hijra and other non-gender conforming communities second-class citizens in India and infringes on their rights such as voting, the right to own property, the right to marry, the right to claim a formal identity through a passport and a ration card, a driver's license, the right to education, employment, health, etc. for non-binary persons. These inequalities were exasperated during the COVID-19 pandemic as these communities were further dehumanized by being barred access from relief packages passed by the government as they lacked proper identification in their preferred name and gender. Today, many hijras live at the margins of society in low status, with many making a living through prostitution where they are subject to even more violence and exploitation at the hands of police or escort organizers called gurus due to persisting laws that impose on and restrict the lives of non-cisgendered persons. The previously stated are examples of how colonialization has lasting detrimental effects in the health and body of the colonized and permanently altered the societal norms enacted through Western imperialist governance. transition to an interview with Vidhi Jain. Vidhi uses they-them pronouns and is a third-year undergraduate student at the University of California, Los Angeles. Vidhi has responded to some questions that I have sent them ahead of time, and I'm going to read their answers. To begin, are you familiar with the Hijra community, and if so, what is your perception of them? Does this differ from how others in India look towards them today? Yes, I'm familiar with them to some extent. 
My perception of them has definitely changed over time. I see them as members of my community, putting themselves at the forefront of LGBTQIA liberation, fighting not only for their rights, but for the rights of the entire community. I also look up to them as a model of community care, radical self-love, and unconditional acceptance in a society that oppresses them beyond measure. I think this is vastly different from the way the majority of Indian society views them. In fact, there's an interesting dichotomy here. The Hijra community is legally and socially rejected and ostracized from mainstream society, but still reverend as demigods. They're often seen frequenting weddings and baby showers, showering their blessings on the family in exchange for money. And in a God-fearing country like India, refusing their blessings is inauspicious and nearly blasphemous. This duality is interesting because they're both rejected as well as revered. But it seems that this rejection is gradually emerging as the more prominent behavior. I do think, however, that my generation thinks about this differently, and that gives me hope. What does following someone like Zadi Zane, who advocates for existence through your own manifestations of your destiny and challenging notions of femininity and masculinity while also being South Asian, do for you? When I first came across Zane Saha's Instagram, I was honestly just in awe. Very rarely have I seen South Asian LGBTQIA folks be unbashedly queer as well as unbashedly South Asian. For me, owning both these identities was and continues to be extremely challenging. I'm an international student and I was only able to openly express myself and my sexuality and gender once I came to the U.S. for my undergraduate education. So my gayness is very limited to the U.S. Even when I come home to India now, it's like a switch goes off in my head and I shut off this whole part of myself that I otherwise would not. And because of this separation, I've never really been able to merge my identity as a South Asian person with my sexuality and gender. It's be- something I'm still working on, and following people like Zain Sa and Alok Manan and having them fill my feed has been incredibly inspiring. In that sense, following Zain has helped me bridge the gap between my culture and my gender and my sexuality to some extent. I'm beginning to realize that I do not need to keep those two parts of myself separate from one another and that they can come together to form something truly beautiful and unique. These are some final words Vidhi wanted to leave us with. I think there's a gradual shift to being more open and accepting to non-binary identities and gender presentations. I do think, however, that the immense amount of work, labor, and energy that has been invested in kickstarting this shift has been put in by folks from the most marginalized sections of society, like the Hijra community for instance, but they haven't been given nearly the credit they deserve. The other day, I came across an article in an Indian newspaper titled Gender Bending with Jewelry, and the picture was of a cis-passing, straight-passing man who fit Eurocentric conceptualizations of beauty wearing a tiny golden necklace. It's safe to say I was infuriated. Cis-het-passing folks are not the face of this movement. It's folks from Hijra community who put themselves on the line speaking up on social media and not who still fit the narrow standards of beauty accessibility set by the oppressors. In the same vein, I think there's a dire need to view this change in acceptance not as India westernizing, but as India decolonizing, because really, that's what it is.
What I hope you take away from this podcast is that it is important to be critical of where our perceived binary notions come from and whether these notions and beliefs that we have have been influenced by colonialism and imperialist powers. In India, we can see the case is that non-binary genders and third genders were prevalent and respected in society. The introduction of Western gender binaries created a rigidity in India that persists still today, where we see the ostracization and infringement of liberty and rights of non-gender conforming individuals and the hijra community. I want to echo a very special thank you to Vidhi for doing this and providing first-hand insight about your community. This is invaluable for my research and allows listeners to contextualize the topic in modern terms. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast, and until next time, take care, stay safe, and don't forget to wear a mask.